Hi, welcome to Slot Leader, a Cardano Finance podcast where we bridge the gap between the world of business and finance and the world of blockchain technology. I'm your host, Umed Saidov, and in today's episode, we have somebody special from the Cardano community, somebody with the background in business and consulting, building a de decentralized financial application. In this interview that we have with uh, Dwayne Cameron, we will be discussing blockchain, we'll be discussing economy and the implication of blockchain and cryptocurrencies um, in this space and what he tries to solve with his decentralized finance application. This interview is filled with a lot of interesting insights. I really had a lot of fun talking to Dwayne and uh, I hope you enjoy it too. Before we go on, I would like to thank everybody who's been watching and listening to our podcast. Slot Leader was created about two months ago with the hope of creating the type of content that would take all that knowledge and experience that I've had in the blockchain industry and try to apply it in real world financial and business applications. And I'm glad that we have such a strong following in the Cardano community and outside of it who are interested in this subject. So thank you so much for being uh, such avid supporters of this uh, uh, podcast. And uh, I hope I will be able to uh, continue doing this and uh, create uh, the type of content that you find useful. If you are a Cardano stakeholder who would like to support this podcast, you may do so by delegating your stake to Skylight Pool. Skylight Pool is a professionally managed Cardano stake pool that's been there since the ITN and we've produced a lot of blocks and a lot of great rewards for our stakeholders. So if you're looking for a pool to delegate to and you like the type of content that we're putting together, you might want to consider our pools. The tickers are Sky and Sky2. As always, I would like to remind our viewers and listeners that uh, Slot Leader is an educational podcast and as such, we do not provide investment, financial, tax or legal advice. As you know, every week I look through the blockchain industry media to look for events that have significant economic or regulatory implications for the space. And in today's episode, I would like to discuss the SEC's recent announcement to establish a standalone office for digital assets and blockchain. I think this signifies that the space is mature enough to be looked at by a uh, regulatory watchdog and uh, probably define a separate set of rules for this asset class. I don't know exactly what will come out of this um, new initiative, but I think it bodes really well because um, it probably uh, will lead to a se separate set of rules and regulations for this space. In the Cardano community, we saw the monthly update this week that laid out the uh, next steps for the development of the ecosystem, Cardano's ecosystem. And of particular importance is uh, the fact that uh, Cardano is moving into a space where we will be integrating um, a lot of different kinds of languages onto the platform. I think uh, Charles Hoskinson's video, the, the Blackboard bit video, does a really good job of covering what is about to come. 
And um, for those who are interested in finding out what they can build uh, on Cardano and what kind of languages potentially could be used, and now I'll tell you, uh, there's a hint in there that uh, uh, Cardano will be a pretty much language agnostic if uh, the vision, when the vision is uh, materialized. So uh, if you would like to know more about what is about to happen, I will put those links in the videos. Um, comment section in the on YouTube. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. I have uh, Dwayne Cameron. Um, he is uh, one of the Cardano members, um, uh, one of the important Cardano member, a community member, and uh, um, he is uh, building a, a DApp on um, Cardano um, that will provide liquidity to different markets in, in Africa. I'm gonna let him talk about this particular app, but before we do that, I would like to welcome Dwayne to our program. Um, thank, you, thank you so much for making time. I know you're busy, you're working for a, uh, a consulting company uh, out of um, Philadelphia. So uh, um, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good, Ahmed, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, been with Cardano since the start of this project. Um, our team members at Liquid are, you know, really excited to start building our entire protocol on Cardano. The rollout of the system and Project Catalyst. So, uh, it's a great time to be a part of this community, and I'm excited to, you know, talk about all that today with you. Yes, Dwayne. Um, so I, I know that you are one of the uh, prominent members in the community. I know you're pretty active in Twitter, and and uh, as uh, somebody who's also coming from the finance uh, background, it's always refreshing to see somebody with uh, that much depth of knowledge and understanding of digital assets, especially Cardano. Um, it's not an easy sort of task to understand and explain digital assets. Uh, uh, Cardano could be a little bit harder to explain, but you do a great job of uh, sort of evangelizing, so to say. And uh, can you tell me how you uh, came across Cardano and why you liked it? Yeah, that's, that's a great one. Um... So I think the time was around mid 2017, kind of like Q3 2017. And I was just a first year business student, um, really kind of learning about the entire crypto space. Ethereum, I think, was really my entrance into the space and the, the entire idea of smart contracts. And even, you know, what wasn't named DeFi, but wrote what was already DeFi, this concept of prediction markets and order books that were, you know, trustless in this decentralized cloud that anyone could interact with. I just was really fascinated by the whole idea. Um, like I said, at the time I was studying finance and business and gearing up to, to really kind of enter as a, as a investment banking analyst or a banking analyst or you know, a consulting analyst. So I was in this kind of thought process already. Crypto really aligned with what I was seeing in the, in the current financial markets um, as a real answer, as a real solution. Obviously, Bitcoin was booming at this time and the whole market was going up. So that kind of increased the fuel, I guess, to that rally. But I guess hidden within all of that was this real keen interest in Cardano as a project early on. I mean, I remember, you know, after really going down the Ethereum smart contract rabbit hole, the next thing I saw was Cardano. And the first video was that Charles Whiteboard video. And I think everyone knows that initial video and that three hour long kind of breakout of each component of the system and what they were really going to build over the next, you know, three to five years. And I think from then on, I was pretty much uh, Team Cardano. Even even I didn't I didn't know it fully, um, but but that was really the truth of it. I think I think you know on Twitter, and we can kind of talk about this a little bit. I think on social media, Cardano gets this rap as you know um, 
Charles's like personal pet project that like is, you know, building all this code and it's all these scientists in a dark room. But actually people don't realize that like this thing is spread around the continent at this point, you know, with over, you know, what, almost 2000 safe pools with a foundation in Switzerland that has business dealings, you know, with countries around the world, Emergo and what they've done. Um, I think that people don't realize the actual amount of bandwidth on the developer side, the community side, the investor side, you know, I get texts from like other VCs, hedge fund guys, other banking, you know, analysts who I talked to, I went to school with these guys, they invested in Tezos, you know, their hedge fund is long, some of these proof of stake like Polkadot's, they want to learn about Cardano staking, you know, they're, they're having too hard of a time just learning how to unstake or unbond in these other protocols, they want to learn more about ADA, right, and that means that we're just kind of entering that mature phase where, okay, outside investors, you know, outside actors could come into Cardano and take a real role in that. I think as someone who was here from the start of that process, it's kind of great to see 2020, like this whole community really mature um, to, to get to that point. I mean, even talking about liquid, and I'm sure we'll get there, liquid couldn't have been a real concept in terms of the exact implementation details and how we want to use the Cardano chain and the features we get, you know, before, before we had all these things fully fleshed out, liquid in its current form just couldn't be a thing on Cardano. So yeah. even in that, you know, there's, there's, there's like the whole maturity of the chain and that whole process and being a part of that, it's just awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in 2017, which is when I was exposed to it, um, we had a chain um, that worked um, as, as uh, something that you could use as, uh, you know, uh, means to transfer and store value, but uh, we had seven uh, nodes that uh, constituted the whole chain, and they were sort of uh, you know federated. And you know, there's there's a lot. There were a lot of skepticism around the idea of uh, you know whether Cardano is going to actually one day be decentralized, right? And they were doing active research. And um, I understand, you know, like if you are a a hedge fund, and at that point, you know, you have uh, you you are looking at proof of stake as, as the next uh, step, you know, the, your options were limited, you know, you had Tezos and uh, maybe a couple of other ones, right? Um, and, and Cardano was uh, an active, even though it was actively researched, um, the code was not being written at that point. And, you know, I, I remember um, uh, Charles Hoskinson getting a lot of heat about that, you know, uh, but my personal opinion and my personal assessment at that time was, you know, there's no way um, that there's so many uh, bright scientists who are lending their name to this protocol are going to one day turn around and say, oops, you know, um, it, it, it won't work. So um, we're just going to uh, pack up and go and, or, you know, things would, you know, fail, even though, you know, it's, it's, you know, these building these kind of uh, protocols is, is a risk risky in, 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 in its nature because it's quite new. Nobody else has done it. But still, um, I think they persisted. Then they refined. I remember their um, Ouroboros papers and reading all of them. And that's one of the things that we, you and I, probably had as a luxury. It was the time we we studied the fundamentals. That you know, fast forward to 2020, all these concepts that are being thrown around. You know, you and I pretty much understand it. But somebody who needs to just you know, roll up their sleeves and try to understand things uh, might might have a, a little bit of a, a you know a learning steep learning curve. But there is. It, yeah, it, it is it is amazing that we have come this far and uh, we are building on uh, the research that has been done and uh, we are introducing Yella again, which is uh, a, a great concept. I think that's something that we need to talk about. Um, 
uh, you know, Yella being a, an interpreter, uh, uh, you know, a platform, sort of a, a language platform, or K-Framework being a, 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 a platform where anybody with any uh, K-defined language would be able to write smart contracts. You don't have to learn another language, for instance. You know, that's, a, that's one of the greatest things that's happening in, in Cardano that is not uh, fully grasped uh, by, by the wider community. But yeah, so um, when you talk to the financial professionals, right, um, what is your general opinion um, when, when they talk about, when, when you expose them or when you talk about cryptocurrencies, what do you think is the major impediment for them in, in order to look into this space? Yeah, I think there's a few, but they're quickly being solved. You know, I would say the number one is actually still just a general understanding of what digital assets entail. What is Bitcoin versus a blockchain? And what are all these other, you know, 3,000 cryptocurrencies floating out there, right? And where does Cardano fit in that picture is like the really kind of macro explanation that like, it's not easy to kind of even have the Bitcoin versus blockchain conversation, you know, much less try to get these guys to really think meaningfully about, you know, what proof of work versus proof of stake means, why proof of work might not even be that sustainable, you know, and, and you kind of have to get through to that level of understanding, at least at a, you know, high level to be able to say definitively, okay, beyond the science, the research, you know, the weekly technical reviews that we read for Cardano, this is why, you know, the Cardano chain is going to win to be here in 50 years. Like, you really have to have some level of blockchain understanding to be able to kind of preach that to them. But I think at the highest level, financial people understand yield and they understand the fact that right now we're in a world where bonds are done. The pensions that have their 70-30 allocated to equities and bonds, they're done, right? They're going to have a lot of trouble in the next couple of years because we have 16 trillion plus of, you know, global debt that's just negatively yielding right now or basically beneath almost at 0%. So that's a huge problem for many different people around the world. And, and when I say pension funds, I mean, there's trillions of dollars of wealth that are tied up in these bonds that have right now a zero yield. We compare that to the digital asset world, right? And let's just take something like staking on Cardano, right? The perfect example of a risk-free yield on a system. You'll never actually lose ADA by staking on Cardano, right? And you're always going to be able to earn something like five to six, maybe even seven if you're good, percent interest every single year, right? There's going to be a day that's coming very soon where, and you can call it whatever you want, the search or the hunt for yield, like, these financial institutions and large firms are truly going to be like running around, you know, blindfolded in any asset class they can. Commodities, fixed income is not going to be there anymore. So equities, ETFs, whatever they can to find some real yield, right? To cover the fact that their 30% or 20% allocated to bonds are, are just not even giving them any, right? And when you put in inflation into that, that's a whole nother problem in a year like 2020. So there's issues that are happening in the current traditional system that's actually making first gold look super attractive. Let's be honest, it all flows through gold. And we were talking about this before we just started recording, Umed, about you know, how that history of money started and how gold became this you know, liquid asset that was hard, could be used at any marketplace you know, that formed around the world. So it's going to flow through gold and that's going to flow through Bitcoin. But quickly, institutional money will flow into Ethereum, into Cardano into these third gen blockchains, right? What exactly that path looks like, whether it skips gold and goes straight to Bitcoin, and then it's obviously a quicker flow into Ethereum or Cardano, what that looks like, and that 
very well may happen. I actually just don't know. But I do know that a major shift is coming when you look at just the amount of money that's allocated to assets that are yielding 0%, right? Like that in its own is a huge problem that no one is talking about. We now have 10-year corporate bonds in America that are yielding 0% or almost negative percent interest. Like that is a real problem that nobody wants to talk about, but we're really going to have to discuss pretty soon. And it's, it's, it's all just like a free advertisement for cryptocurrencies. You touched, Again, and here's my yeah. last point. You touched you upon at, a yeah, very, very interesting um, uh, topic, actually. Let's just expand it a little bit, you know. My fear is that with all this money being printed at this point, um, we've seen the inflation of, of um, um, equities, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Equities are have gone back to their original pre-COVID-19 um, levels. And they might have actually, they surpassed this S&P 500 has surpassed. Um, the composition of S&P 500 changed, of course, you know, uh, we have a skew towards uh, uh, technology companies, the FANGs. But um, it looks like in its, uh, you know, um, path to for, for yields and, and growth, uh, the money has just overinflated the, the, the equities, because as you said, you can't you can't go below zero in, in bonds. So uh, you know you have to sort of allocate somewhere else in order to be able to meet your fiduciary duty. Uh, let's say let's talk about pension funds, right? You, they have target target rates, and they need to meet those target rates in order to be able to meet their pension obligations. These are billions and trillions of dollars we're speaking, and uh, when they look at the landscape of available financial instruments, bonds, uh, real estate, you, talk, you name it, you know, you, you know, equities at this point, uh, things are really, uh, they, they are really not that attractive, you know, um, and uh, there's two things that I think will, uh, might happen in the future, and, and one is that we will completely rebase our, you know, pricing, uh, because, you know, there's just too much money slushing around, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, 20, 2019's, uh, you know, uh, 35, uh, uh, you know, 100 S&P 500 is going to be, you know, is going to be a 7,000 uh, S&P 500. It's, it's, you know, but, um, but to your point, all of these pensions, they are starving uh, in terms of yields, and there isn't enough growth in the real economy. And I don't know how soon it's going to come back. We have uh, the COVID-19, uh, the COVID, you know, the vaccine um, available um, coming into the market soon. But uh, I think it will be a slow recovery because all these businesses that went out of business or uh, have suffered a lot, and we're talking about the major part of the economy, um, not big corporations, but, you know, the main street, the mom and pop shops that are the backbone of the economy. I think 60% of the U.S. economy is, is basically small businesses. Uh, when they start coming back, it's it's going to be slow, and uh, we don't have enough of them in the stock market to be able to uh, to tap into them. I think. So what will happen is eventually the smart um, the smart um, uh, legislatures, um, the le legis you know uh, legislative bodies will understand that they need growth, just like the way that we needed growth when internet came to be and, you know, we opened up internet for commercialization. Um, I think we're going to go down that path. 
So we are going to open up the, the floodgates uh, for institutional money to come into the digital asset space in order to fuel the innovation. I think that's where we're headed. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I heard today uh, or yesterday, uh, SEC opened up a, uh, a, a special office for digital assets and fintech. And that's a, a very bullish sort of sign for this, uh, a, you know, a space because I think they're willing to sort of look into this space as a separate sort of um, um, domain. Asset class. Yeah, yes, yeah. because it is. You know, you can't you can't just lump it into stocks or bonds because it's completely different. It has different properties, and uh, and what will happen eventually is that that money will come into this space hunting for different kinds of. Um, assets, you know, I, I created Oculent, which is another company that I own as as a um, uh, as a research house in order to make sense out of all these digital assets. And you know, I may have been just a little bit too early because I opened it up in 2017, 2018. Um, you know, expecting that the institutional money will have to eventually come. But you know, I think this is where we are headed right now. And um, when the institutional money comes, they will need uh, differentiated research in order to make sense out of what they are buying. Because right Absolutely. now they're not they're not even uh, aware of what they're buying. I think they you know they just uh, spray and pray kind of strategies by by some hedge funds that I've that I've uh, met in New York before. They just basically say, okay, I just want to get an exposure to this space. I'm going to take okay ten top ten. I'm going to just uh, do a uh, um, a naive uh, diversification, basically one over N, and uh, let's see what happens. Um, right. And with Bitcoin being so correlated with other assets, maybe that's not a, such a bad idea at this right. point, but I think things will decouple really fast when the real money comes and when the on-ramps become more available for um, you know, uh, institutional investors. What do you think about... Um, um, registered investment advisors do you see an uptick in interest you brought up some good points here that i want to i want to hit on before we get to that so the whole concept of like this etf like you know diversified asset basket of digital assets i think that's coming actually when you look at even uh so uh zoomers or millennials or whatever you call us i think that they did a study of the top stocks that uh like millennials purchased basically in 2020 and then I think it was like, you know, Netflix, Apple, Tesla, some other thing. And then it was actually a Bitcoin. Um, it was like whatever product I think that maybe Grayscale offers um, that you can purchase on maybe one of these exchanges. I don't think it's like NASDAQ or something. I, I don't know where it trades, um, but basically that was that made as the top five. That was the fifth most bought stock. And it's just like, you know, a Bitcoin, you know, IRA type of deal that you're buying. Yeah, it's so, actually selling at a huge premium too. Yes, <laughs> so it is. Yeah, so it's money. to think about that. So we're, you're going through, you know, you're you're buying something at a super premium just to be able to get exposure to Bitcoin because it's that hard to just say, hey, I want I want this in my 401k, right? Imagine when we make this super easy to say, okay, here's not even this IRA type of funky product. Here's just direct staked ADA that's being wrapped into an ETF with maybe the top five proof of staking network tokens, right? That's where we're heading in the future. And like, I think it just takes a couple more years before we get there. You talk about regulation. I think that the interesting thing about Bitcoin, right? And we can kind of talk about this and transition into proof of stake and liquid. But the interesting thing about Bitcoin from a macro global perspective is if we, like when you talk about regulation in America right now, and 
even Cardano, right? Where the foundation is in this proof of stake alliance, right? And that is saying, okay, we got together with Cosmos, Tezos, Polkadot, and some other proof of stake chains and said, we're going to lobby, you know, the SEC, we're going to lobby the House of Reps and like literally the U.S. Congress to treat proof of stake tokens and tax implications that are tied to them more friendly, right? Than maybe we could have if there wasn't a group lobbying for them, right? So that's the whole thesis behind why we're in this thing called POSA, right? Proof of stake alliance. The letter, if you actually read it, what they what they wrote to the Congress or what Congress actually wrote to, I believe it was maybe the SEC for how we should, or actually I'm, I'm, I'm confusing this. Congress wrote a letter to the IRS. The letter was to the IRS on the tax implications of basically the staking rewards that you earn each epoch for whatever staking system you're in. And actually, if you read the opening letter, they're posing proof of stake as America's gateway into public blockchains and crypto as a way to basically equalize the dominance that China has right now in proof of work with Bitcoin. And that's actually exactly how they pose the entire kind of need and impetus for Congress and IRS to treat the taxation of these proof of stake cryptos way more friendly than they otherwise would have. It's actually not just because they think this is the future tech. It's also because they understand that China has such an advantage in the hashing power and just the, the, the infrastructure they've built around Bitcoin at this point compared to America, that the only way America is going to have a meaningful say in the rebirth of the decentralized internet is going to be through these programmable proof of stake networks, which honestly, if we're being real, these programmable proof of stake networks will likely have you know, way more utility in the long-term future than Bitcoin. I liken it to, do I use my Venmo account or my gold in my, you know, in my vault more each day, right? So it's like, it's that kind of, kind of, I guess, discussion. But the other thing is, okay, you look at North Korea, they were a very early mover into Bitcoin. Are you really going to think that the West and America is going to allow Bitcoin to go to a million dollars and allow North Korea to get ultra rich overnight? I, I just don't see that scenario playing out. So like, yeah, you know, the Bitcoin guys say 100x, you know, it's going to happen. You know, we're going to a million plus. Like, yeah, maybe it could happen. I'm not even ever going to doubt that out, right? Because Bitcoin is the OG, much respect. And I love Satoshi. He's awesome. Right? He or she is the reason that we're all here today. But when you look at proof of work, when you look at the amount of energy they burn, when you look at how it scales over time with the increase in the cost of Bitcoin, it's like, do you really think that we're going to just allow some of these rogue nations like North Korea to just go rich with Bitcoin at a million dollars? I much more think that Bitcoin is going to get to this kind of low volatility place. It might be 100K. It might be 250. It might even be half a million. I don't know what that number is going to be. But I don't think we're going to see this like Bitcoinization of the world that everyone kind of talks about because blockchain tech has advanced in 10 years and Bitcoin for the most part really hasn't. Like, they're just implementing notions of privacy and it's 10 years plus later, right? So, and, and on top of that, all these other global macro plays, like I, I just don't see the whole proof of work winning out long-term that people think. And that's why my entire portfolio always in crypto has always been proof of stake, right? Whether it's been Cardano and obviously Ethereum is moving to it now, but now it's all just Cardano because I'm saying, this is my bet. I want to be on the fastest horse and I want to be on it, right? And, and to me, it's ADA. So it's, 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 that's kind of how I view the whole space of proof of work versus proof of stake. But yeah. 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 I, I think if you, if you, if, if we go into the comparison of Cardano with other 
technologies that are out there. Granted, I haven't looked at Polkadot or Tezos that that deeply because I'm quite busy running a stake pool and being very active on the uh, governance side of things in Cardano because I, I think we are entering a very critical moment and critical sort of um, um, uh, period in, in Cardano where um, active participation is, is quite crucial and uh, Cardano members, community members um, who are interested in, in these uh, aspects of the protocol need to step up and, uh, you know, um, make sure that, you know, they, they contribute and uh, their voices are heard. I, I think um, if we compare Cardano with other um, Tezos or, or, or Polkadot, and again, you know, I'm just basing uh, my opinion based on, on anecdotes that I've heard, uh, Cardano is much more seamless, I think. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to lock anything. You don't have to be, as, as a staple operator, you don't have to be afraid that, you know, your stake is going, your, your pledge is going to disappear because, you know, uh, somebody misbehaved or you could get attacked. I mean, it, it creates that attack vector, right? You, you think about the outcomes, you can just say, all right, um, if I am a bad uh, staple operator in some other stake, uh, proof of stake protocol that actually slashes your stake if you misbehave, um, then it provides incentives for other people to actually attack other pools. And that's another thing that I talked with Duncan. It's just so amazingly well thought out that they went to a great extent, game theoretically, to eliminate all the possible attacks that uh, stake pool operators could, could uh, mount on each other. And, and one of them was, you know, how do you redistribute um, the... Uh, the, the amount of stake that is not, not actively staked, right? So on, on ITN, if you remember, all of that was kind of distributed to, you know, the, the pools that were staking. So we kind of got, you know, um, more um, money because of the fact that the stake was not participating. In the main net, that goes back to uh, reserves. And it's, it's such a beautiful, well, very elegant way of handling uh, game theoretic um, uh, motivations or incentives to actually um, make the protocol, um, you know, uh, it, it handles the negative effects of what could have happened if we did not introduce these, uh, these measures. Uh, so now if you think about other protocols, and I don't know about what's, what's happening with Ethereum, but it, it, it looks like they constantly are hitting some roadblocks that I thought if you hired scientists, it, you could have completely eliminated those, you know. It's, uh, it's, it's, I read that recent article from, I think uh, it was the chief scientist, Angelos, um, and he basically talked about how the staking works in Polkadot and Tezos and kind of the, the different schemes that are being used in these systems versus Cardano. And I agree, just the simplicity, the elegance of the way you can either enter a staking pool or leave it, um, the notion of slashing and the fact that you don't even need it in, in a you know, truly robust system like Cardano. And I mean, when you look at the total value that's locked, in, or you can call it locked, but really, is it ever really locked unless you're a pledge, right? So the total value staked in Cardano compared to these other networks, it's like, you know, way more. The, the only thing that compares at this point is ETH2, right? So let's, let's just be real. And ETH2 has, what, a three-year head start on Cardano at this point. And so, a market I, cap of uh, 50, what, right, 60, exactly. 60 billion or whatnot, right? So, yeah, exactly. So I think that, you know, we clearly, like, this is Ouroboros is a huge win. Even Polkadot itself is using a notion of Ouroboros and then decided to complicate it more for no reason to introduce their staking system. So it's like, you know, and, and I don't I don't even mean it's a bash because I mean, I wish them all well. I really do think that in this space, a rising tide is going to lift all boats. But 
I think that, okay, a rising tide, but I want a fast horse that's on that tide. And I think that Cardano <laughs> is the fastest horse. So that's where we are. Right. And, you know, we can transition into like what we're doing with liquid. And you kind of talked about something with yellow because we're actually planning on using that DevNet and potentially even using the yellow to, to build our V1 in solidity. So a lot of what we do actually, and, and how I think just even as an investor, you know, as a DeFi analyst, whatever, it comes from, okay, there's certain things that Ethereum has right now as a result of being three plus years early or whatever, and just having some of the mind share and dev share they have now. You can use these systems, learn from them, and then realize that Cardano is building a base layer protocol that's like comparing building on granite to comparing building on quicksand, right? So the things that we're planning on introducing, like truly out of the gate, are things that you really couldn't do on Ethereum, right? And some of those things are like dividend models and actually being able to introduce a dividend from day one that's tied to the protocol. Like there's no DeFi system on Ethereum that can really do that. Why? Because the transaction cost to use the chain is just way too high. That would just never be feasible. In Cardano, that's a realistic thing that you can introduce from the start. And then you talk about, you know, real traditional finance analysts coming into DeFi and valuing your protocol, your token off of, you know, the dividend, you know, theory, basically the dividend policy, whatever that whatever that, um, however much dividend you give over time, you can use it to value the entire market cap of the protocol, right? So exactly. these are things that I actually, and you know, our product lead, we were just on a call um, with our chief strategy guy and our, our product lead and just talking about what does it look like to go from, okay, you're building something in solidity that's gonna run on Yella, but, but actually in the end of the world, it's all compiling into Cardano or Boris Land, like, you know, the SQL operators still are still running all of our smart contracts, even though it's programmed, programmed in Solidity technically. So what that actually looks like is, it's just a huge efficiency and cost saving across the board, because we don't have to worry about, you know, all of the just basic costs to do simple things on Ethereum. They're, they're like, you know, basically they, they round to zero on Cardano, right? Whereas yes, they're very yes. serious, meaningful costs that you have to, try to predict for on Ethereum. Yes, um, Dwayne, let's just go and, and delve into your product and um, Liquid. Um, can you start from the beginning and um, let our viewers and listeners know um, what Liquid tries to do? Just basically in a, in a very you know, elevator pitch type, uh, you know, um, sort of a format, tell us what Liquid does from an end user's perspective. Yeah, so Liquid uh, aims to provide a borrow lend protocol on top of Cardano's blockchain. So if I have some ADA or another asset that's living on Cardano and I want to earn interest on it, or if I have some assets that I want to use as collateral to take out a loan, um, I can just engage with a liquid protocol, one of the pooled, um, basically liquidity pools on liquid, whether it's for ADA, whether it's for a stable coin on, on Cardano, right? I can engage in these markets to become a lender and earn interest or a borrower and take out a loan. So there's similar kind of notions of this um, kind of DeFi lending on Ethereum. Uh, Compound is one, AAV is another. Uh, DYDX is margin lending. So um, you can use it for derivatives and things like that. Um, but the concept of lending kind of really goes back to like a core feature of banking, if you will. Like when you go to a bank, right, you deposit your funds there. That bank is, you know, allowing other folks to use your assets pay interest, and then giving you a small subset of that, right? That's the basic notion of what a bank does. So you are, in essence, uh, creating a decentralized bank. 
In essence, yeah. If, if Cardano already wasn't a decentralized financial system, now we're going to create a decentralized bank on top of it, pretty much, yeah. yeah and, and you know, it's, it's more than that. Too. Oh, sorry, I didn't want to cut yeah, you off. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I try to think of it as like more like decentralized liquidity because, yeah, you can build the bank and lending and borrowing is like on the risk curve, really at the bottom. Like it truly is like the most basic of implementation. Like when you go up on the risk curve, start talking about the Uniswap type of, you know, actually asset swapping and trading. And you can do that on liquid, you know, in a future version of the protocol, the same liquidity that's being used to allow other, you know, borrowers to come in and use those assets, that same liquidity can be put in a, you know, adjacent or same pool to actually swap those assets. So that same liquidity can be used to introduce things like derivatives and even ETFs. So there's a future version of liquid, you know, there's a V2 of Uniswap that introduced future things. There's a V2 of Compound. So all of these protocols, they, they aim to actually just build the foundation. In our case, that foundation is liquidity on chain. Um, and in the future, you can do really cool things and introduce features that are all kind of tied to that liquidity that you've managed to basically build on chain. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's what liquidity is. That's what well, liquidity let, is. Let's talk about version one, the one that you're <laughs> building right now. Um, yep. Who is going to be the, uh, the um, borrowers? In, in so that's that. a great question. I mean, the, the borrowers are anyone, right? I mean, we have ideal use cases. We see stateful operators who want to, you know, put up some ADA and then take out a loan against that to maybe finance their cost of running their stake pool. Um, you know, there's, there's many different use cases. Anyone who's holding ADA or holding a stable coin on Cardano who wants to either, you know, use that asset to go longer or to go short against it who wants to use it to finance an investment or even finance their stake pool, like I just said, right? Like these are all users who would be ideal borrowers in the system. The whole notion of the V1 protocol is what we're building is in, in traditional finance terms, you would call it a fully collateralized credit facility. Mm -hmm. So what that means is everyone in the system is over collateralized, right? And usually a collateral factor of something around 70 to 75%, right? So we're saying for every $100 worth of ADA that you put up, you can borrow 70 to $75 worth. You go over that limit, you are technically in what we call under collateralized world. And you're basically at that point at risk of getting liquidated in the system. Um, okay. The whole entire system basically works because you have liquidators who can earn a discount by liquidating all of these under basically underwater contracts. So we see it as a default risk to the protocol when you have a loan outstanding that doesn't have enough collateral to back it. So we're allowing liquidators to come in take 5% of your base collateral and pay for your loan or the amount of your loan that's now under collateralized. So uh, it's a very like kind of sophisticated, simple contract call that we're able to build um, because what you're saying is anyone can build a liquidation bot around that. We'll probably build the initial ones, right? Any trader, any dev, anyone who wants to be an arbitrage, it's like a trading strategy at that point, right? You can take this contract call that we'll provide and basically any time the system now has an outstanding loan that becomes under the collateral limit, anyone can call that contract with the address and some ADA in it, and you'll basically pay for that person's uh, you know, amount under collateralized. So that's how the, that's in a nutshell, how the entire V1 actual system is gonna work. You can deposit, you can borrow, and you can liquidate assets. There's a governance module as well. There's, there's a whole notion of the folks who are actually using the protocol being able to govern it into the future. And, Kind of what that looks like and means um it's it's actually really key for us because you know when we started liquid we never started a company there's no vc investment you know this is 
truly a decentralized organization that from day one, we're saying we want to put this in the hands of the community. And, you know, right now the community is Cardano, it's Project Catalyst, it's the folks who are engaging with us on the Liquid Discord channel. So it's, it's everyone who's a part of this project up to this point. It's the enterprise developers like Twig and App Invented that we've partnered with to, you know, help us in addition to our core devs, add some developer bandwidth. So it's all of these different players that are kind of involved in the development of Liquid right now that we want to be a part of governing the future. And yeah, there's gonna be a token that's gonna you know, help us align those incentives and actually implement governance. But what it really means is, you know, we can be a DAO first model and not have to go the whole LLC route, the whole traditional startup route, if you will. Okay. Now, um, <clears throat> when you were talking, I kind of started thinking about, uh, you know, if, if you, if you kind, of, kind of tie back um, this, the role of liquid in, in attracting sort of capital, um, I started thinking about these pension funds, right? Um, that they're looking for yields. And I also started looking for, I started thinking about um, all these emerging markets where in order to uh, um, get a loan, you have to pay 20% in dollars, right? 20 or 15 or whatnot. Um, and I started thinking this instrument could be a really good way of, um, of bringing those, you know, this liquidity supply and liquidity demand together and creating a market that actual has an actual price that reflects the reality, right? Yeah. So um, for somebody who has uh, a, a bunch of US dollars, let's say, you know, USDC, right? And just create this uh, a digital form of US dollar. Um, instead of letting it sit there and, and uh, collect dust or get 0% or maybe even negative in some cases, um, you could actually earn eight to, you know, seven to 8% per year. I mean, and it's US dollar, right? It, you're not taking any risk uh, with the, you know, that's over and above uh, the US dollar uh, uh, risk. And uh, you would kill for yields like that on, uh, on equity in the United States, right? right? You know, dividend yields or whatnot. Um, right. So, uh, you yeah. know, and here you have a guaranteed sort of way of, of getting those, uh, you know, yields. Uh, I think there will be a lot of liquidity, um, you know, coming into this space like that. And on the other hand, of course, you have all these uh, uh, nations that are starved, you know, they don't have enough dollars, right? Uh, that could actually access that liquidity that way. Uh, and you mentioned that, you know, the initial sort of applications would be probably something that you could um, um, use on chain for, for, you know, probably trading, et cetera. But I mean, do you think you could, you could extend that to uh, to become a loan to an agriculture uh, to to a uh, set of coffee producers somewhere in Ethiopia. Could that evolve into something like that? Yeah, I mean, so there's there's many things there. You know, the V1. Yeah, we, we talked about it. It's going to be very vanilla and look like a compound, just simple borrow lending on chain. But in the V2, right, when there's this notion of, and I've, I've talked to our product guy Florian about this a lot actually. There's this notion of uncollateralized lending because that's when you're really competing with like the current banks because where they make their money is not actually over collateralized lending. Like it's not mortgages. It's actually being able to offer under collateralized or zero collateral loans. And, you know, you talk about the user in Nigeria, right? When they go to these loan apps or when they go to a bank to take out a loan, what they're actually being, um, what they're, what they're being kind of sold is a zero collateral loan. almost. So, they're entering as a borrower and they're not putting up any collateral at all. Now, the price of that is like you said, it's 20 to 30% loan origination fee. It's 
you know, high interest rates that are variable usually, but like super variable, it's, it's you know, fixed payment terms and, and high costs that are embedded in that if you miss that. So all those things that you end up paying like, a, you know, 200, 300% APY on that loan because of that scheme. And we call it a payday lending scheme in America, but yep. whatever you want to call that scheme, right? It's yep. like, okay, it's zero collateral lending, right? And I want to be able to introduce a feature and it's going to be in the V2, but we could say this. If we white label with a bank that actually is able to offer a zero collateral product, because you actually do need to have a credit license, like to be able to offer zero collateral loans, like that, that's like a whole like, and it's across jurisdictions. You really do need a banking license to be able to do something like that. But what you actually can do as a DeFi protocol, you can white label by partnering with the bank in Nigeria or Australia or Ethiopia and say, hey, you guys already offer zero collateral lending. We can integrate through Atala Prism that's already set up in the Liquid app to basically white label this bank's whole compliance and regulation to enable you to offer using liquid liquidity, right? So the capital that we've put up, you can now integrate with your bank's compliance and regulatory processes to approve borrowers to actually have 0% collateral loans. So at that point, what the liquid borrower is getting is they can now open a 0% collateral loan. The bank is now getting a borrower who they never had access to before, right? So banks always have the means to give out loans. They never have enough customers who want to open up loans, right? Who are at least eligible, who have good enough credit, right? So that's always the hunt for banks, right? You can basically align all of these different parties to offer that specific product. And in in, in the process, you're saying, okay, you're a, a coffee farmer in Ethiopia, right? You might not have any collateral you can put up in ADA or US dollar coin, but you do have, you know, a record of your, you know, past six harvests and you can kind of show us your ability to, you know, produce and work with other farmers. Maybe you even join an alliance, right? You can then put that somehow into your Atala prism, like make that an organization or a part of their kind of past experience, allow the bank in Nigeria to handle all of the regulation and compliance side of this. So they're actually validating the Atala prism they're validating that that person is who they say they are. They're verifying their identity. Everything that you basically need this banking license to do to be able to offer a 0% credit feature, they're doing that for you. And then you're hooking into Cardano and our liquid pools to say, okay, here is where you're actually getting those borrowers. Here is where you're getting you know, the actual capital to supply them. Really, the only function the banks are giving us at that point is white labeling compliance and white labeling identity verification. How much you need to pay the banks to do this is a real question. Um, and, you know, whether the banks actually should pay us for this integration. Like, there's some things that are still outstanding. You don't know how this exactly plays out. But let's say it's something that you have to pay for, okay? So you pay for a one-time integration with the bank. And, of course, they're going to want something like this because it's making their job. It's giving them new customers that they didn't have access to before, right? For the liquid saver, who's actually supplying the U.S. dollar coin, they're now getting access to a loan that's going to inevitably, like, right, like out of the box, these 0% collateral loans are going to carry a higher interest rate. So if you're paying 2 to 3% interest to borrow normal stablecoin on Cardano and Liquid, you're going to be paying maybe 10 to 15, maybe even 20 if it's your first time borrowing a 0% collateral, depending on the actual bank that we white label, right? And that's kind of just inevitable, right? Higher risk levels, you're going to pay a higher interest rate to borrow on collateral. 
And that's in line with credit cards and things like that, right? So what we're saying is there's higher earning potential for the liquid lenders, right? They obviously want to be a part of uncollateralized lending because for them, it means, okay, yeah, you're moving up a little bit on the risk curve, but you're white labeling it through this bank. So you know the people who actually get the loans are gonna be secure and verified identities. And you're gonna be earning instead of, you know, four or 5% interest, potentially 15, 20%, right? And the yeah. banks are gonna take a small percent cut out of that as well. So that's the play in V2 and V3 of liquid, right? But um, yeah, there's some things you have to do to kind of establish yourself to get there. Um, and, you know, we're on that path right now in terms of the initial development. That's fascinating. I mean, that's that's exactly where um, I would like to see the protocols to develop and go. Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, that's just one thing that I've noticed in, in a decentralized finance in in uh, Ethereum is that they are rediscovering the concepts that we, you and I, probably know from from the get go. Uh, but they are, you know, um, rediscovering it and and trying to reshape it in a different shape and form. But the concepts they remain the same you know as right. as the risk grows the interest rate grows and uh as as you de-risk your um loans with collateral you can you can borrow at a lower rate i mean that's that's inevitable right. um you know as you said the uh integration with uh, traditional finances is something that needs to be addressed i hope we will have some really good frameworks um whether it comes out of your work with uh you know banks or some other way uh, from, from the legislation when they decide to actually look into this space. Uh, it would be very interesting to, to actually uh, watch this space. My personal observation in this uh, is that SEC is in, in a, a, uh, an interesting space. You know, For them to basically say the digital assets are a security or some, some form of uh, asset that they need to regulate, um, We'll give give this space uh, the uh, the uh, um, legitimacy uh, to actually be you know accessible to four hundred one ks et cetera et cetera. So I think you know maybe some, but if if you just keep ignoring it, then you know it will just develop in, on its own, and and uh, eventually you will have to recognize it. You know that's that's the thing. This space is evolving so fast. It's amazing how in in the entire. My entire career as a finance professional, and I've worked with uh, different organizations and banks, uh, I, I haven't seen this level of innovation take place in finance. And I honestly, I, I felt always that we needed to do more in order to bring banking into the 21st century. And there were attempts to do that. You know, you talk about E-Trade versus when, when they came out, I thought that was great. You know, you could, you could trade with your phone, et cetera, et cetera. But even then, um, you know, there was something that's lacking. And, and I think decentralized way of, of, um, of managing your money. And, you know, you could regulate on-ramps and off-ramps. To your point, by the way, uh, of uh, regulating Bitcoin, I don't. I mean, Bitcoin itself could go up to you know whatever it needs to go. But you know, if North Korea does not have a way of of liquidating these assets and, and getting um, the money out, you know, they're kind of are a stock. Especially if uh, you know the intelligence agencies identify those wallets that are um, connected to to uh, rogue rogue nations, then it becomes basically impossible and you know these these notions of like oh i'm gonna just hack an exchange and, and take some bitcoin or ethereum it's kind of a moot point because your coins will be tainted and they will be tracked yeah. and you will get caught 
So I mean, there's, there's no reason to do that. So, I could I could put the devil's advocate though and say with Bitcoin adding CoinJoin and some of these other things uh, to give privacy to the uh-huh. actual protocol, you might have a North Korea that actually has private Bitcoin on the network that they can sell off in little batches. So yeah, there's both. It's a real it's a real problem for Bitcoin. I'm not gonna lie. It it yeah. truly is. It's unaddressed. The whole China hashing dominance. We kind of like Blockstream doesn't talk, like to talk about it. It's not their favorite topic. Oh, of course. You just don't have to deal with it. You know, oh, oh, all of the damn sig pools in China got shut down because China went hard on crypto or in India or some other nation. OK, we'll have a couple more spinned up in you know Japan or Southeast Asia somewhere. So it's like there's just there's this whole ephemeral nature, nature of proof of stake networks that proof of work will never be able to have. And yeah, I do yeah. agree with the privacy thing. You might be able to. You might be able to, at this point in time, if North Korea publicly has a lot of Bitcoin, we could probably track it and trace it. And make yeah. It no, I mean, look, look, it, you know, if, if they introduce the privacy sort of uh, protocols and privacy sort of uh, solutions, they are, and that becomes a problem. Uh, that's for sure. But I think my, my biggest sort of concern, and I really respect Bitcoin for wherever it's done. I mean, to be honest with you, I, when I entered the space, Bitcoin was the hardest sort of cryptocurrency to use because I was trading. I was trading arbitrage on two exchanges. And my first mistake was that the Bitcoin settles immediately, right? Or whatever, you know, 12 minutes, or what was, was it like five minutes or something like that? Um, confirmations, yeah. Um, yeah, well, it, it turned out that it, 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 it takes an hour, right? So yeah. I, I, I found out that there's two exchanges first. I mean, that's what, you know, I got excited about this uh, whole space. I re- wrote a small script in Python. I hacked this whole thing and, and uh, it would let me know that, uh, I have a, a five or four percent um, sort of arbitrage return, risk-free, right? Yeah. Um, between exchanges, so I just buy and sell. Um, the first time I tried it with Bitcoin, um, I did not do well because it took an hour to settle, and by the time it settled, the price moved, and I did not have anything. So, and then I moved to Ethereum because it just settled every fifteen minutes. So, I yeah, it, yeah. the window of of, uh, of 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 exposure got reduced substantially. So, I made some money that way. Yeah. Um, back in the day, but my biggest problem with proof of stake, uh, proof of work, is that um, the amount of energy it will take if it just goes the way it is. Um, it will Truly. to actually That's, create yeah. a Bitcoin is going to be just at some point the chain will halt because yeah. it's just not feasible to just have that much hashing power and and uh, waste so much energy to squeeze out the. I mean, the price will have to go up if yes. this chain needs to uh, exist into the future, the price has to go up because otherwise there's no justification for, you know, uh, you know, getting uh, a fraction of a Bitcoin uh, spending enormous amount of money. And at some point it will stop, I think, because like a game of musical chairs. But by that time, I hope we will be able to sort of port Bitcoin because it already has some sort of value and uh, into other chains and there would exist in their current form or whatever, and, and their form in other chains without the Bitcoin chain moving. Uh, so, it, you know, we we're talking exactly about new people powers, right? You yeah, know, so, right. So right. if they exist on, on Cardano and they can be moved really easily and they have their own sort of value and you can just verify that it, that Bitcoin existed at that point, um, then, you know, it becomes basically a, a coin without a chain kind of thing. So right. I don't know if that is going to basically have any value, but, you know, that's probably... It could be a side chain too. There's that whole notion of, okay, it could be a side chain and you attack on NEPA pals. Now you have 
all of Bitcoin's liquidity talking to Cardano pretty easily. You know, we'd love to have a liquid Bitcoin market. Like we'd love to have a liquid Ethereum pool, right? Like there's, there's concepts of, okay, there's major pools of liquidity, even though the Bitcoin network is really just push and pull at this point. How does like, that's why you see all this like WBTC and like things on Ethereum where you're trying to unlock that liquidity. And it's no different than what we see in centralized finance where you build products around gold to try to unlock gold's, you know, massive liquidity, right? And you, you do interesting things with that. So it's the same concept. We're just taking a very simple asset that's super liquid and trying to basically use it in our programs that are like very much so upgraded. I think in the future, like you said, Bitcoin's going to have a major problem because yeah, burning as much electricity as Switzerland right now is fine. But what about when you're burning, you know, half of what it takes to power Russia? Like, because that's where we're heading. Like that's, and once that's the reality of this whole thing, like 5% of world electricity being used on Bitcoin, that's just not going to be a thing. Like there will be, I guarantee state attacks, you know, for better or worse to shut that down. Now, hopefully before that, you see Bitcoin go green. You see, you know, some major shift in the type of, you know, just the way mining is done today towards the future. You need to see a shift in renewable energies. You've got to see it go hydro, go green. It doesn't even matter. Go anything, right? Go nuclear. I don't even care at this point. But you cannot keep saying you're going to, the current output of electricity is just going to power Bitcoin 30 years, not even, I don't think a decade into the future. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Dwayne, for coming. Um, the uh, I'm, I'm trying to basically get my guests to uh, make a, a prediction on the price of ADA every time they come. So I just started this uh, trend. Um, what do you think we are going to see as a price of ADA by the end of this year and uh, uh, by the end of 2021? What are, you, what are your predictions? Yeah, um, yeah the, not a great prediction guy at all. So I'll preface it with that but I, I would say by the end of this year let's say that like 15 and a half cents right now i'd give it like 30 cents by the end of this year all right i'm bullish on december december is usually a good month uh not last december but december <laughs> has historically not been a terrible month for uh for some cryptos especially towards the end of this so let's say around 30 cents december. all right end of next year i would say at least all-time high so at least a dollar 40 by the end of the year all right all right. Well, thank you again for coming, Dwayne. I really appreciate talking to you. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's, it's, it's great that we have you in the community and uh, I wish you the best of luck. Thanks, man. It was a blast. Happy to come on sometime when Liquid gets further in development as well. Thanks. Absolutely. I will have you on again, I'm sure. Yes. This marks the end of our episode today. I hope you like the interview and the type of content that we're putting together. And if you do, please do not forget to subscribe, like, or comment on our videos. It really helps us a lot to build awareness about Slot Leader. I'm your host, Umed Saidov, and uh, I will see you next time.